as creatures of planet Earth, we are subject to gravity. It takes us a few years to realize this on life's journey, but we eventually discern the influence that gravity has upon our lives. This force that pulls us toward the Earth's center is a constant, and we come to depend upon it. Gravity keeps things where we put them. It enables us to move from place to place on Earth's surface without flying away. Gravity is an essential tool for things such as athletics. We jump against it. We send balls hurtling through it. We use its force to help us knock an opponent to the ground. Gravity is part of life. We depend on it. It's helpful. But we also learn that gravity can do us great harm. We shuffle to the edge of a cliff our body senses the fear. Why is that? Because with absolute certainty, you know that if you step over that edge, gravity will show up. And without any variation, it will yank you to the earth and you'll be crushed to death. And so there's fear in our heart as we consider the power of gravity. This constant, ever-present influence of gravity upon our lives only begins to illustrate, just begins to help us to understand God's influence in this world. The universe pulsates with God's glory. His glory radiates from every molecule. And God uniquely created us in His image in order that we might see His glory and find our satisfaction in Him above all else. God is infinite. And He is unchanging in the very best sense of that word. He is all-powerful. God is all-knowing and all-wise. He is everywhere present. And all of this in a state of unfathomable joy and absolute perfection. For God to fail to display His glory to us, for God to act as if He is not the ultimate joy of the universe, would be for God to hate us. And it would be for God to play the ultimate idolater. To act as if there were other gods producing satisfaction when there are not. And so, with infinite passion and moral responsibility, God labors to magnify the splendor of His name at all times, in a way more pervasive even than gravity in our lives. His sovereign agenda, the agenda of creation, the agenda of human history, the pervasive force that pulsates through everything is God's glory. And so there is only one sane response, and that is to synchronize our lives to that reality. This means that to subject our wills to God's will and to live our lives for God's glory is life itself. A far more greater sense than how we adjust to and learn to use and live with gravity We live with the glory of God, and it is life itself. This means that to ignore or resist God's will, to violate His Word, to live for my glory is to rage against reality. And we have all, to some degree, raged this week. We come to this table today Not in our righteousness, not in our innate holiness, but we come as sinners. To rage against this reality is to step off the edge of a tall cliff and believe that everything will work out just fine in the end. It won't. But there is forgiveness with God through His atoning sacrifice. The substitute of our Savior as we have celebrated His life 
as we have celebrated the meaning of His death for us as sinners, there is in this hope and there is in this glory, not for our name, but for God's. This mindset is dramatized for us in the most memorable way in Leviticus chapter 10. I invite you to turn there. We've seen it dramatized as well in Acts chapter 5. And we'll draw some parallel between these texts, Lord willing, in a few moments. But first, let's remember as we come to Leviticus 10, just to capture all of us together and to remember the flow of thought, Exodus 40 ends with the physical manifestation of God's glory on Mount Sinai coming down and filling the tabernacle. The tabernacle, what was taking place on Mount Sinai with God's presence, is now in the tabernacle. God dwells among His people. But the question that's left ringing in our ears through its silence at the end of Exodus is how will this place where God dwells become the meeting place with man? And so Leviticus seems to start out of nowhere, but indeed begins to answer that question from the very first verse with sacrifice. A substitute sacrifice paying the penalty of sin and dying in the place of the sinner. And coupled to sacrifice then comes priesthood. Those who will represent sinners before God. Those who will be the guide to help them know what God demands. And how we can meet with Him. And if we've made any progress over these few weeks that we have centered in Leviticus 1-9, through it's that the system is complicated. It's very involved. It's very dramatic. As blood flows and sacrifices are offered on a fire that never goes out. But this is God's way. It's His way of demonstrating to us who He is And so we looked last week at Leviticus chapters 8 and 9 as we looked at the consecration of the priests, bringing the sacrifices to the altar before the tent and actually offering those sacrifices. We saw in chapters 8 and 9, if you remember this, the emphasis upon obedience. Obedience to God's commands. If you look at it in chapter 8, In verse 1, it starts with God speaking. He speaks to Moses. Work your way down in the text to 8.4. It is as the Lord commanded that Moses acts. Verse 5, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Verse 9, at the end of the verse, as the Lord commanded Moses, so he acted. Verse 13 of chapter 8. At the end of the verse, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 17, at the end of the verse, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 29, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 34, as the Lord has commanded, so it has been done. Verse 35, they did what the Lord has charged And verse 36, Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. You don't have to read very carefully to realize the emphasis there, do you? Over and over again, everything that's taking place is per the Lord's command. We move into chapter 9 where the priests are actually now sacrificing at the altar and bringing and representing God's People, these who fail in sin before the holy God, we find in chapter 9 and verse 7, and we see this emphasis as well, as the Lord has commanded at the end of verse 7 and at the end of verse 10, as the Lord commanded again. So they are putting into practice according to what the Lord has provided, but there is also here in verse 4 another idea that is introduced. And that is at the end of verse 4, that the Lord will appear to you. On this day, the Lord will come. Verse 6, Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. So God initiates, sacrifice is offered, and the result is the glory of God is seen by His people. 
All of that is important to keep together. Now verse 23 of chapter 9. Verse 23, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people as God had promised through their obedience, through this sacrifice, the glory of God appears. They see that which permeates the universe, that which fills heaven and earth is now there in their presence, objectified in this moment, the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And verse 24, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. The pieces yet burning would take a long time to burn all the sacrifices that we read of in chapter 9 through all the consecration of the priest. Now at the end of it, This fire breaks out from the presence of God, consuming the sacrifice and saying on God's part, I accept this worship. I accept this way into my presence. I accept you. So the sacrifices that will be substituted in the place of sinners so that they may approach God have been established The priesthood has been chosen. It has been consecrated. The priests are offering sacrifices in obedience to God. God consumes the sacrifices on the altar, making it very clear that He is there, that He approves of everything. And it'd be really nice for the story to end right here. And they lived happily ever after. But Acts chapters 1 through 4 is followed by Acts 5, and Leviticus chapters 1 through 9 is followed by chapter 10. And we find the fire of God consuming not only the sacrifices, but also consuming two of the priests. Chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire. You see in your margin, strange fire, which would be more uh, direct to the Hebrew. The idea means unauthorized, unholy, unacceptable. Fire is offered before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And verse 2, the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They're struck dead. Hot coals were placed in a censer. In the priest's hand in this picture is something like what it may have looked like when censers are pictured they all look different which is a way of saying we don't really know exactly what they look like but coals from the bronze altar the altar outside the tent was to be placed in the censer and then the ointment the the spices that are described in the old testament are placed in there and they are vaporized so there's a a beautiful smell that comes from this and it's placed on the altar of incense before that veil that separated the Holy of Holies. So the priest would put that on that uh, with this censer, with something like this, and it would be placed on that altar of incense. Now they're coming with this burning incense, and they break the law of God. They color outside the lines, they do it their own way. Nadab and Abihu violate his command by not doing what the Lord has said. So we ask, what was the nature of their sin? What exactly did they do? As you read verses 1 and 2, it's not entirely clear what it is that they actually did wrong. It's, it reminds me of the, the account of Ham and Noah. Remember that? They're, he went in and visited his father in a compromising situation, and it's kind of left to, you know, kind of a bit of a head scratcher as to what precisely took place there. What was the nature of it? We're not entirely sure, but they were, I would suggest, almost certainly intoxicated. We'll point to the reason for that later to come. But they were almost certainly intoxicated, may not be, but likely. And since the emphasis here falls on the fire, it is likely that they did not take coals from the bronze altar outside the tent. A fire is not easy to come by in this day. You don't just have a a lighter. They don't have matches. 
And so once a fire was started, you wanted to keep coals alive so that you could use those coals to ignite another fire. It's possible that they took these coals from some fire other than the altar, the bronze altar outside the tent where the sacrifices are offered. An argument can also be made that they entered the Holy of Holies. And we don't see that at all here, but we do see that in Leviticus chapter 16. So it is possible that, at that where that altar of incense is, and they put the censer on it, as that uh, ascends, the smoke ascends to God, right behind that altar is the veil of the Holy of Holies, and it is possible that they entered in there. Because when we come to Leviticus 16, that connection will be directly made. Now, all of that to say we don't know. We're not entirely sure, but there are indicators along the way that this may be the problem. All we need to know here is that they acted out of sync with God's command. And it's very clear to us the contrast with chapters 8 and 9. They did as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded, over and again. But what we see here is that they act in a way in which they have not been commanded. God is not impressed with His priests coloring outside the lines. He doesn't take suggestions from them and He doesn't mark them up for being creative. Rather, He looks at what they have done and He sees that they are taking initiative on their own to determine in their own mind how we should approach God or how it is acceptable to approach God. It was like defying gravity. It was like stepping out over the edge and thinking that all would work out just fine. It didn't. Fire came out from before the Lord. That should catch our attention. Fire came out from the Lord, verse 2. Notice chapter 9, verse 24. And fire came out before the Lord. Fire comes out from before the Lord to consume the sacrifice. Now it comes out from the Lord to consume the priests. This is a major event and a major problem. Here we see in close proximity to the joy and wonder of access to God, 924, while at the same time realizing that access to God exposes us to the fire of His holiness. And judgment falls and these two men die. The tabernacle is in that event defiled by their death in the presence of the God who is life. There's nothing more defiling in this ritual system, in this drama that God is, is pointing us to understand who He is. There's nothing more defiling than death. And they drop over. And they're dead in the tabernacle. Leviticus 16, it will need to be cleansed of their fallenness. But what God reveals to Moses in light of this terrible turn of events is the central point of the chapter and this whole narrative in chapter 10 and that is verse 3 then Moses said to Aaron this is what the Lord has said among those who are near me I will be sanctified and before all the people I will be glorified and Aaron held his peace our natural tendency of course is to sympathize with Aaron here's a dad who's just lost two of his sons in a terrible tragedy he can't talk to them to figure out what they were thinking. He may not even know entirely what has happened. We don't know. But the big story is not Aaron and his pain. The big story is God's glory. And so Aaron held his peace. Why is that? It seems that it honors God's justice. It contrasts, though, also with chapter 9, verse 24. You remember the people, when they saw the fire break out from God and consume the sacrifices, what did they do? They shout for joy. They fall on their face in worship. There's a great response on the part of the people. But when this fire breaks out, Aaron is silent. The contrast is significant. The glory of God appeared. But in this case, its appearance was tragic. Its appearance was deeply concerning. 
Entering into the presence of God is complicated. It is hard work. This sacrificial system is immense. But this, to walk into the presence of a holy God can mean death. Aaron holds his peace. Now for those who live within the culture in which we find ourselves, those who would surround us, certainly the unbelieving world, but even many Christian churches who will never touch a book like Leviticus 10. This seems harsh. God is holy. That's a truth that we understand, but when it comes to the application of God's holiness, we begin to get a little bit less excited. It is harsh in one sense. But let if it's helpful to us, let's remember it's harsh like that person stepping out over the edge of the cliff and being dashed on the rocks below. It is harsh. But it is the reality of this world. It is who God is. We need to understand that God's holiness is real. That His holiness distinguishes Him from us. We need to see that. These two dying is not so much a matter of a harsh and vindictive God as it is a matter of simply coming to terms with the reality that His holiness is pervasive in this world and that breaking His law is dangerous. But I think the second thing we need to recognize is that this is the inauguration of the priesthood. This is right out of the gate. There are many priests who violate God's will from this point on who are not judged with death. Some of them we find in the book of 1 Samuel even coming to the tabernacle intoxicated and using it as a place to connect with women sensually. There is death ultimately, but not a striking to death there in that case. And in many cases we see priests living godless lives in the presence of God who are not so treated. But the importance here is that at the inauguration of the priesthood, God is saying, I will have a holy people. Those who approach me, those who come near to me must be holy, for I am a holy God. And the importance of seeing that holiness is in God an intensity that is greater than a parent who's watching a child walk to the edge of a cliff and is saying, stop, is seeking to capture that child, is saying, you cannot go there, you cannot step over that edge. Because they know what gravity means. Here, multiplied infinitely, God is saying, you will not cross my holiness. That is the most dangerous thing that you can do. And in this moment, to strike these men dead in the big scheme of things is a mercy to Israel. And it's a mercy to us to understand how the holiness of God operates. It's not negotiable. It is ultimate reality. And so their being struck dead is no different than one stepping off a cliff and being dashed At the bottom, the second movement of our text begins in verse 4. And that is the theme of all of it, I think, verse 3. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I will be made to be seen as holy. And before all the people, I will be glorified. This is all important. Now Moses gives instructions as we move forward from this act of disobedience to the removal of the bodies from the sanctuary. Verse 4, And Moses called Misael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. Brothers used generically here, relatives. So they came near and carried them in their coats. Remember the word coats means tunic. It's basically what they wore next to their skin, their basic uh, clothing. 
It would seem then that the robes have been stripped off and they're carried outside the camp where the sacrifices are burned, where what is unuseful is burned up. As Moses had said in verse 6, Moses said to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes, lest you die and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. So you are not permitted to mourn in the normal way. You can mourn, you can bewail this burning, this judgment of the Lord on some level. Those around you may do so, your family. But you are not to turn this into a mourning event, for God has acted justly. And verse 7, Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses, That is the anointing oil. They have been consecrated. They are now consecrated to the holiness service of God. And in this moment, with their robes on, they are not to leave this tabernacle area. The next movement begins at verse 8. God restricts the priests serving under the influence of alcohol. Verse 8, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Why does he bring up intoxicating drink here? It could be random, just where it happens to be placed. But if we connect it to the context, it may indicate that misuse of alcohol was part of the problem for Nadab and Abihu. And that seems to make more sense than that it's just free-floating inserted here for no reason. Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting. That is, they were to be entirely in charge of their faculties. Now, strong drink isn't like our strong drink today. Distilling was not uh, discovered yet. But nonetheless, they had alcoholic drinks available to them. And they could be under the influence of that alcohol as they ministered to the Lord. Alcohol douses the flame of reason. And this will never do for a priest seeking to honor God's rules of worship. Every gulp of alcohol falls on the bonfire of one's reason with cumulative effects and eventually free, it frees people to do and say what they would never otherwise do and say. It is possible that Nadab and Abihu were under that influence, that their reason was compromised, and so they proceeded in a way that displeased God and led to their death. Which seems to be why the Lord now speaks to Aaron and says, drink no wine or strong drink as you minister at the tabernacle. No verse 10. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, or the profane, and between the unclean and the clean. This will take up now the rest of the book. Chapters 11 through 15 dealing with what is clean and unclean, these ritualistic standings before God in cleanness or uncleanness, and chapters 17 through 27 dealing with what is holy or what is profane. But notice here, it's enough at this point to just say that the priests will be the teachers of God's law along these lines. What constitutes holiness? What constitutes cleanness? What is its opposite? This will be the priest's task. They will be guiding the people and helping the people by describing what is holy and what is common, what is pleasing to God and what is not. And indeed, even just describing to them as people how they are human. And in their humanness, there is an unclean standing before the Lord in many instances. Much more on that to come, Lord willing. But we come to the fourth movement at verse 12. 
Moses here speaks to Aaron and to Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron. He says, take grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings. For so I am commanded, but the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. If you're saying, haven't we thought about this before? We have. It's there for contextual reasons. It's been there in the text before. Nothing novel here, but Moses seeks to bring these men along in their responsibilities. The significance of these words are made clear in the fifth movement of the chapter, beginning at verse 16. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. What had he just been talking to them about? The portions that they were free to eat. Well, the whole thing has been consumed. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. Now, Not connected to this. We're standing there. It's kind of like if you're standing in front of two mechanics and you don't have a clue about how to fix a car. I've been in this spot. And you're hearing them talk and you're going, what on earth are they talking about? It's it's like, I kind of get it. I know it's about a car, but what what is going on here? We feel a little bit that way here with these priests having this conversation about protocol and ritual. But as we put it together... There was two goat offerings, and the one was to be consumed as it offered atonement for the priests. Another one was to partially be eaten as it offered atonement for the people. God laid out the stipulation specifically to teach what He wanted them to see in this drama of sacrifice, and they didn't do it right. What they were supposed to take away from the offering for the people and to eat, they didn't eat. They burned it up. They burned it in sacrifice to the Lord. Why do you think Moses is so exercised about this? Nadab and Abihu, the holiness of God, the command of the Lord, you don't color outside the lines. What are you thinking? What are you doing? He may have anticipated that they soon would be dropping over dead in judgment. But Aaron comes to the defense of the priest in this occasion successfully saying, verse 19, to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved such things as these have happened to me does that mean it seems to indicate that he's talking about the death of his two sons so he is saying i'm not able to mourn as would be natural but we are bewailing their loss and as we do that it seemed inappropriate for us to be eating here a meal Fasting was very common at a time of death for the Israelites, and Aaron is showing here not rebellion, which Moses anticipated. This isn't rebellion. This is thoughtfulness about the law of the Lord and how it applies in this particular situation, which is unique. And Moses is satisfied, which I think we can get off track and add too many ideas here as to what's exactly going on, but it certainly does indicate that God has flexibility on some level in some ways. 
that there's an understanding here that these rules are not ultimately absolute, although don't track very far from them. They are not suggestions. They are laws. But in, this, in his mercy and in this case, Moses is satisfied and God is satisfied. And the matter is complete on this horrific day. It is a day of great sorrow for Israel. A day of the reminder of what it means to walk in the presence of a holy God. Much could be said by way of application as we bridge the gap to a very different world. We've gathered today around this table to say that we must too come to God on His terms. He defines the terms. He takes the initiative. We are called to a holy life not to please Him by gaining His acceptance and entrance into eternity because of our goodness. We're gathered here to say in our sin we come on Your initiative, on Your invitation as You have laid it out. Christ's death and resurrection is our hope not our performance. But we come indeed responding to the grace and the mercy of the Lord to come to this table, to come to this truth of Christ crucified and risen and to find in that our life and our hope. We come on His terms. But as we think about our life together as the people of God, as those who now, knowing Christ, know the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, know the fulfillment of the priesthood in Christ, we're gathered here, we eat, not a whole lot, but we drink, and not a whole lot, but we eat and drink here together a little bit symbolically to say we are now in fellowship and communion with this Lord, this holy God whose judgment fell not on us, but on His Son. The holy judgment of God broke out against sinners, but it did not consume us. It consumed Christ. And in His mercy, He gave us that gift. He gave us that sacrifice. And here we commune as a church at this table. And in everything that we do, we commune in Christ. We're reminded, I think, then secondly, as we labor as a kingdom of priests, as a people that represents God to this world, I think we certainly should be careful how we apply this passage, but also careful that we not offer strange fire in the worship of the church. There are proper parameters of cultural influence in worship. I think those, and my understanding is those who operate faithfully and honorably before the Lord can look quite different in the way that they worship the Lord across the face of the planet. And cultural pieces play into that in a very complicated way for every one of us. But we must not take that and conclude we're free to do whatever we feel like doing. I think a text like this reminds us of the significance of not offering strange fire. And I think what is most concerning to us in our particular environment is worship innovation that paints the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and His priesthood in an atmosphere of entertainment and titillating stimulation that is merely freedom of expression and entertainment. Again, I would say there's no single orthodox style. I think there are elements of worship, and we would argue that by way of the regulative principle, that there are elements of worship that should be part of any orthodox church. And across the face of the globe, I've seen that practiced at a, in a living room around a, a, a table. I've seen it practiced here and seen it practiced in churches of thousands. Those common, biblically revealed elements of worship that are so vital to the growth of God's people. But with that said, there will certainly be no orthodox style. But when a church's worship environment conveys that the gospel of Jesus is best captured 
in a raucous environment mixing crowd-pleasing hilarity and sentimentality with a sin-free focus. We've got to wonder if the gospel itself is not being rewritten. The message that is being sent to people just doesn't come across as we worship the Lamb of God sacrificed from the foundation of the earth. That we worship the God, the Christ, who said, take up your cross and follow me. There is to be joy, there is to be seriousness that mixes together in our worship But with all of our weakness, with all of our failings as a church, may we never encourage an environment that seems to indicate Jesus is our buddy, life is grand, let's have some fun together. When we do that, we can be too grave, too serious, certainly. We can lack joy, but we can also fail by sending the message that the church of Jesus Christ is assembled together to simply have a good time by all. We want to be careful with that. There's a message of holiness that we always seek to proclaim as we gather together as God's people. Secondly, that seriousness carries into the life of accountability in our church. We see the transference here of the concepts that are dramatized with Nadab and Abihu and that are then fleshed out in Acts chapter 5, which was read earlier. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. Nadab and Abihu dropped dead as they transgressed the holiness of God. Now, as I mentioned, most of the priests that violated the law of God did not drop dead. At the inaugural stage of the consecration of the priesthood, these two do as God sends this message. You're not free to run with this however you choose. You must come to me on my terms. The same thing happens in Acts 5 with the inauguration of the church. That early church and the first discipline case, God comes down hard to send a message. It is merciful. It is kind in the large scheme of things. Now you have to think, you hope Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven and you have to think, boy, we did we ever land our sin right at the wrong time? Let's hope so. But in the big scheme of things, God knew it was necessary to send this message. I'm not playing games with my people. And I haven't given the life of my son to die in your behalf that you come together and live out your life as the church of Jesus Christ on your own terms. You are not going to use my people to elevate yourself, to look good, to give money, hold some back, but tell everybody you gave it all so that you look good. That's not going to happen here. Christ's people are gathered together to magnify the splendor of His name, to see that He is glorious and great and good. And when we play religious games... We track away from what Christ intends. But when there is appropriate exercise of discipline within the assembly, according to the directions that God gives us, we send the message rightly that as a church we're not playing religious games. This is not a joke. This is not a word that is given to us in Scripture of mere suggestion. It's the word of the living God. And we need to live it. So there's great grace. There is opportunity for forgiveness through repentance. But there is no freedom for a child of Christ to walk in unrepentant sin and to be confirmed in that by his people. No one, as far as we know, would be struck dead. But we do know Israel and the church and the history of both indicate that we must walk in faithfulness to God in fellowship and in communion with one another. There's a message here, I think, as well for leaders in the life of the church, for pastors and deacons and teachers and disciplers and anyone who's leading anyone else along 
in ministry. We have a holy calling to display the holiness of God in our obedience to the Lord. This is our calling. It is important. And it is vital as a church that we are praying for one another to be faithful to the Lord. I invite your prayers for me. I invite your prayers for all who lead and teach the Word of God that our lives would back up what we teach. And we need to be praying for one another. As we do at least formally on Wednesday nights, passing out the name of all who are part of our body and praying in behalf of each one by name, by God's grace, laboring for our holiness and our righteousness and our faithfulness to the Lord. That is to pray for our own joy, to pray for our own gladness of heart and faithfulness, to be in sync with the glory of God and to be displaying that glory to a lost world is joy itself. We pray then for one another that we would not denigrate the reputation of Christ and that we would know the joy of living for Him. This is then individually and personally. Let me talk to you just for a moment. This is a call. This text is a call for each of us, for this church as a whole, to adopt a particular worldview that recognizes the universe to be calibrated to the glory of God. We gather together saying that and rejoicing in that truth, and we want to live our lives in a way that synchronizes with that reality. That the glory of God pervades all things, that this is the reason that He created the universe, and that I, through redemption, have the privilege of being part of that work in this world. Which starts by accepting this by faith. More than gravity is the pervasive presence of the glory of God in this world. To get in line with it, to get in sync with it, to relish the opportunity to live in it, is so vital. But then it means practically not just how we think about and conceptualize the presence of God and His glory in our relationship to Him, but it also involves then in light of this passage before us, obedience to His Word. Coming to know what that Word says. Coming to walk in obedience to that Word. This is how we synchronize our life with it. And we fall short and we come on the Lord's day and confess our sins. And day by day and moment by moment, we repent of sin that is evidence of our turning away from the voice of God, dishonoring His commands. But do you live a life oriented and bent this way? God's Word is my life. This is the counsel that I need. I don't live my life and check with the Bible to see if it's alright. I live in active obedience to what God has revealed. His counsel is life itself. And what a joy and privilege to live that way. To practice a life of obedience to the Word. It's not easy. It doesn't come naturally. But it never leads to anything but gladness of heart in the end. And on the other side of it, this of course means that we will live actively a life of rooting out sin, of coming as even in the drama of this event, not directly applicable, but in the drama of this event, event, even the way that Moses is saying to Aaron, get in line with what God has said. In that same way, we keep aligning our life to the Word of God, rooting out the sin that it calls us to leave to repent, and to seek His forgiveness. So in the end, whoever you are, believer, non-believer, holy, unholy, Christian, not a Christian, whoever you are today, there's only two ways to relate to the glory of God, and we see it here in chapter 9 and 10. It is a glory that enthralls, it is a glory that purifies, it is a glory we celebrate, or it is a glory that breaks out in judgment against you and consumes you. And the difference between them is the sacrifice. As we have celebrated here at this table, it is the death of Jesus Christ, His body sacrificed for ours. The righteous one dying in the place 
of the unrighteous one to bring us to God. To bring us near to Him. We are warned in the book of Hebrews, perhaps somewhat in light of this text in Hebrews 12.29, that our God is a consuming fire. And we may honestly say, deep within our soul, we're struggling with the fact that I don't like a God like that. I don't want a God who's a consuming fire. I want a God who gives me what I want. Who acts according to my plan. But that's no different than stepping to the edge of a cliff and hurling ourselves off and expecting it to end well. God is not vindictive. He is not judgmental in the way that we use that term negatively. But He is a God of judgment and His fire will consume the unholy. But we come to this place and then say, here is the ark of salvation. Here is the only place that we can trust that His righteousness is placed on my account, that His sacrifice is credited to me as my sacrifice, that I die with Him and I rise with Him and I live in Him. I'm struggling with words to say this. I don't know how to put this into human language. But God is big. That's what we see here in Leviticus 10. He's big. He's glorious. He's great. And He's good. Do you know this God through Christ? If not, you are the target ultimately of judgment. But you don't have to live there. Come to Christ. Respond in faith to His salvation. If you know Him as Savior, the joy of our life is to know that the glory of God fills the earth and that we live our lives rooting out sin that we might know Him and love Him and submit to His will and to His rule. He is great and greatly to be praised with our lives. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, we thank you for the discipline of Nadab and Abihu. We find no joy in their death. And we sense that were we in their place, we very well might have been the people counseling them to go ahead and do what they wanted to do. But we do thank you for what took place, that it might bring us to you. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you have offered our Lord Jesus Christ to give us life in his name. For any who know him not, please open their eyes to that truth in a way that human words cannot accomplish. Help them to see through your illuminating spirit the glory and the splendor of our Savior. We thank you as those who walk in Christ for this saving grace. We rejoice in it. And I pray that you'd accept our praise this day. For you are great and good God. You are the pervasive glory that permeates this entire universe, heaven and earth. And we pause before you with thanksgiving, asking that we would be helped by your Spirit to align our lives with your holy call upon us. And we thank you for the privilege to do so. Through Christ we pray. Amen.